0: Chapter Two of Tribulations of a Chinaman in China. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tribulations of a Chinaman in China by Jules Verne, translated by Virginia Chaplin. Chapter Two, in which Kin Fo and the Philosopher are more fully described. The reason why Kim Fo gave a farewell dinner to his Canton friends was because he passed a part of his youth in the capital of the province of Kwang Tung. Of the numerous comrades a wealthy and generous young man is sure to have. The only ones left him at this time were the four guests who had been present on the flower boat. It would have been useless for him to have tried to bring the others together, as they were scattered by the various accidents of life. Kin Fo lived in Shanghai, and, being worn out with Inui, was now for a change spending a few days in Canton. This evening he intended to take the steamboat, which stops at several points along the coast, and return quietly home to his Yamen. The reason that Wang accompanied Kinfo was because the philosopher could never leave his pupil, who did not want for lessons, though, to tell the truth he paid no heed to them, and they were just so many maxims and wise-saying losts. The theory machine, however, as Tim the high-liver called him, was never weary of producing them. Kinfo was a perfect type of the northern Chinese, whose race is being transformed, and who have never united with the Tartars. He was of a stamp differing from the usual found in the southern provinces, where the high and the low classes are more intimately blended with the Manchurian race. He had not a drop of tartar blood in his veins, neither from father nor mother, whose ancestors kept secluded after the conquest. He was tall, well-built, fair rather than yellow, with straight eyebrows and eyes following the horizontal, and but slightly raised towards the temple, with a straight nose and a face that was not flat. He would have been distinguished even among the finest specimens of Western people. Indeed, if Kin Fo appeared at all like a Chinaman, it was because of his carefully shaved skull, his smooth hairless brow and neck, and his magnificent braid, which started at the back of his head and rolled down like a serpent of jet. He was very careful about his person, and wore a delicate mustache, which made a half-circle over his upper lip, and an imperial, which was exactly like a rest in musical notation. His nails for more than a centimeter long, a proof that he had belonged to those fortunate men who are not obliged to work. Perhaps, too, his careless walk and haughty bearing added still more to the comme le font appearance of his whole person. Besides, Kin Fo was born at Pekin, an advantage of which the Chinese were very proud. To anyone who would have asked him where he came from, he would have answered proudly, i come from above his father chiang Hio, was living at pekin when he was born and he was six years old when the former settled at shanghai the worthy chinaman who came from a fine family in the northern part of the empire like all his compatriots had a remarkable capacity for business during the first years of his career he bartered and sold everything that the rich and populous territory produces, such as paper goods from sao T'ao, silks from soochu, sugar candy from formosa, tea from hankow and fo chow, iron from Hunan, and red and yellow copper from the province of yunnan. His principal business house, his hong, was at shanghai, but he had branch establishments at nankin, tientsing, macau and hong kong and he was a close follower of european progress he shipped his goods on english steamers and kept himself informed by cablegram of the state of the silk and opium market at lyons and calcutta he was not opposed to these agents of progress steam and electricity as are the majority of the chinese who are under the influence of mandarins and the government whose prestige is gradually being lessened by progress in sort, Chiang Hio managed so shrewdly in his business in the interior of the empire, as well as in his transactions with the Portuguese, French, English, or American houses, in Shanghai, Macau, and Hong Kong, that, when Kin Fo came into the world, his fortune exceeded four hundred thousand dollars, and during the year that followed this capital was doubled, on account of the establishment of a new traffic, which might be called the coolie trade of the new world. It is well known that the population of China is in excess, and out of all proportion to the vast extent of the territory, which is poetically divided into the various names of Celestial Empire, Central Empire, and Empire or Land of Flowers. Its inhabitants are estimated at not less than 360 million, which is almost a third of the population of the earth, now little as the Chinaman eats, he nevertheless eats, and China, even with its numerous rice-fields and extensive cultivation of millet and wheat, does not provide enough to nourish them. Hence there are more inhabitants than can be cared for, and their only desire is to escape through some of the loopholes which the English and French cannon have made in the moral and material walls of the Celestial Empire this surplus has poured into north america and principally into the state of california but in such multitudes that congress has been obliged to take restrictive measures against the invasion which is rather impolitely called the yellow pest as was observed fifty million chinese emigrants in the united states would not have sensibly diminished the population of china and it would have brought about a blending with the Anglo-Saxon race to the benefit of the Mongolian. However this may be, the exodus was conducted on a large scale. These coolies, living on a handful of rice, a cup of tea, and a pipe of tobacco, and apt in all trades, met with remarkably quick success in Virginia, Salt Lake, Oregon, and, above all, the state of California where they greatly reduced the wages of manual labor. Companies were then formed for the transportation of these inexpensive emigrants, and there were five which had charge of the enlisting in the five provinces of the Celestial Empire, and a sixth which was stationed at San Francisco. The former shipped, and the latter received, the merchandise, while an additional agency, called the Ting Tong, reshipped them. This requires an explanation. The Chinese are very willing to expatriate themselves, to seek their fortune with the melicans, as they called the people of the United States, but on one condition, that their bodies should be faithfully brought back and buried in their native land. This is one of the principal conditions of the contract, a sine qua non clause, which is binding on these companies with regard to the emigrant, and cannot be eluded. Therefore, the ting-tong or in other words the Agency of the Dead, which draws its funds from private sources, is charged with freighting the corpse steamers, which leave San Francisco loaded for Shanghai, Hong Kong, or tientsin Here was a new business and a new source of profit, which the shrewd and enterprising Chang hu foresaw. At the time of his death in 1866, he was a director in the Kwangtang Company in the province of that name, and sub-director of the treasury for the dead in San Francisco. Kin Fo, having neither father nor mother, was heir to a fortune valued at four million francs, invested in stock in the Central Bank in California, and which he had a good sense to let remain there when he lost his father. The young heir, who was nineteen years old, would have been alone in the world had it not been for Wang the inseparable Wang who filled the place of mentor and friend. but who was this Wang for seventeen years? He had lived in the Yamen of Shanghai and was the guest of the father before he became that of the son. But where did he come from? What was his past, and all these somewhat difficult questions Chang Yu and Kin Fo alone could have answered and if they had considered it proper to do so which was not probable this is what one would have learned from them no one is aware that china is par excellence the kingdom where insurrections last many years and carry off hundreds of thousands of men now in the seventeenth century the celebrated dynasty of ming of chinese origin had been in power in china three hundred years when in sixteen forty four the chief feeling too weak to resist the rebels who threatened the capital asked aid of a tartar king the king who did not need to be entreated hastened to his assistance drove out the rebels and profited by the situation to overthrow him who had implored his aid and proclaimed his own son chong che emperor from this period the tartar rule was substituted for that of the chinese and the throne was occupied by manchurian emperors the two races especially among the lower classes gradually came together but among the rich families of the north they did not mingle therefore the type still retains its characteristics particularly in the center of the western provinces of the empire there the irreconcilables who remained faithful to the fallen dynasty took refuge kin fo's father was one of the latter and he did not belay the traditions of his family, who refused to enter into compact with the Tartars. A rebellion against the foreign power, even after a rule of 300 years, would have found him ready to join it. It is unnecessary to add that his son, Kin Fo, fully shared his political opinions. Now, in 1860, there still reigned the Emperor Zihain Fong, who declared war against England and France, a war ended by the Treaty of Pekin on the twenty fifth of October of the same year. But before that date, a formidable uprising threatened the reigning dynasty. The Chang Mo, or the Taiping, the long haired rebels, took possession of Nankin in eighteen fifty three and Shanghai in eighteen fifty five. After Sian Feng's death his son had great difficulty in repulsing the Taiping. Without the viceroy Li and Prince Kong, and especially the English Colonel Gordon, he perhaps would not have been able to save his throne. The Taiping, the declared enemies of the Tartars, being strongly organized for rebellion, wished to replace the dynasty of the Tsing with that of the Wang. They formed four distinct armies. The first under a black banner, appointed to kill the second under a red banner to set fire the third under a yellow banner to pillage and the fourth under a white banner to provision the other three there were important military operations in kiang and su chu and kia five leagues distance from shanghai fell into the power of the rebels and were recovered not without difficulty by the imperial troops shanghai which had been seriously threatened was also attacked on the 18th of August 1860, at the time that Generals Grant and Montalban, commanding the Anglo-French army, were cannoning the forts at Peiho. Now, at this time, Chong Hu, Kin Fo's father, was living near Shanghai, not far from the magnificent bridge being thrown across the river by Chinese engineers at Chu. He disapproved of this rebellion of the taiping since it was chiefly directed against the tarnar dynasty this then was the state of affairs when on the evening of the eighteenth of august after the rebels had been driven out of shanghai the door of chang Hiu's house suddenly opened and a fugitive having dodged his pursuers came to throw himself at the feet of chang Hiu. the unfortunate man had no weapon with which to defend himself and if he to whom he came to ask for shelter had given him up to the imperial soldiers he would have been killed kin fo's father was not the man to betray a tai ping who sought refuge in his house and he closed the door and said i do not wish to know and i shall never know who you are what you have done or whence you come you are my guest and for that reason only will be perfectly safe at my house the fugitive tried to speak to express his gratitude, but scarcely had strength. Your name, asked chang Yu. Wang. It was Wang indeed, saved by chang Yu's generosity, a generosity which would have cost the latter his life if anyone had suspected that he was given asylum to a rebel. But chang Hu was like one of those men of ancient times with whom every guest is sacred. A few years later, the uprising of the rebels was forever repressed. In 1864, the Taiping chief, who was besieged in Nankin poisoned himself to escape falling into the hands of the Imperials. Wang, ever since that day, had remained in his benefactor's house. He was never obliged to say anything about his past, for no one questioned him. Perhaps they feared they might hear too much. The atrocities committed by the rebels was frightful, it was said, and under what banner Wang had served, though yellow, red, black, or white it was better to remain in ignorance, and to fancy that he belonged only to the provisioning column. Wang, however, was delighted with his lot and continued to be the guest of this hospitality house. After Chiang Yu's death, his son, being so accustomed to the amiable man's company, would never be parted from him. But in truth, at the time when this story begins, who would have ever recognized a former Ping, a murderer, a plunderer, or incendiary from choice is this philosopher of fifty-five years this moralist in spectacles playing the part of a chinaman with eyes drawn towards the temples and with the traditional moustache with his long robe of a modest colour and a waist rising towards his chest from a growing obesity with his head-dress regulated according to the imperial degree that is to say with a fur hat with the rim raised around the crown from which stream tassels of red cord did he not look the worthy professor of philosophy and one of those savants who write fluently in the eighty thousand characters of chinese handwriting and like a literature of the superior dialect receiving the first prize in the examination of doctors with the right to pass under the grand gate at Pekin, which is an honour reserved for the sons of heaven perhaps after all the rebel forgetting a past full of horror had improved by contact with the honest chung Hu, and had gradually branched off to the road of speculative philosophy that is why on this evening kin fo and wang who never left each other were together at canton and why after his farewell dinner both were going along the wharves to seek a steamer to take them quickly to shanghai kin fo walked on in silence and even somewhat thoughtfully wang looking around to the right and to the left philosophizing to the moon and the stars passed smilingly under the gate of eternal purity which he did not find too high for him and under the gate of eternal joy whose doors seemed to open on his own existence and finally saw the pagoda of the five hundred divinities vanishing in the distance the steamer perma was under full steam kin fo and wang went on board and entered the cabins reserved for them the rapid current of the river of pearls which daily bears along the bodies of those condemned to death with the mud from its shores carried the boat swiftly onward it sped like an arrow between the ruins made by french cannon and left standing here and there past the pagoda half-way nine stories high and past point jardine near wampoa where the large ship is anchor between the islands and the bamboo palisades of the two shores the one hundred and fifty kilometers that is to say three hundred and seventy five leagues which separate canton from the mouth of the river were traveled in the night at sunrise the perma passed the tiger's mouth and then the two bars of the estuary the victoria peak of the isle of hong kong eighteen hundred and twenty five feet high appeared for a moment through the morning mist when after the most successful passages kin fo and the philosopher leaving the yellowish waters of the blue river behind landed at shanghai on the shores of the province of kiang nan chapter two